This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Chris Novak, President and CEO of CropLife America. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. America's sweetest industry creates jobs and provides a sustainably produced food ingredient. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with CropLife's Chris Novak next. America's sugar farming families and workers pride themselves on making sure Americans always have reliable access to this affordable and essential ingredient. U.S. sugar industry is a job creator and economic driver in rural and urban communities across this great nation, supporting more than 151,000 jobs and contributing more than $23 billion to the economy each year. America's sweetest industry is supported by a sugar policy that costs taxpayers nothing. Learn more about how a strong U.S. sugar policy supports a sustainable and efficient food supply chain by visiting sugaralliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The crop protection industry faces similar challenges as the rest of the nation, with rising interest rates, inflation, energy prices, and transportation, but expects to meet the demand of farmers for the 23 crop year. However, Chris Novak, president and CEO of CropLife America, says the industry has a lot riding on two major issues in the lame duck session of Congress yet this year. First and foremost, Congress is wrapping up the appropriations process for for the next fiscal year, uh, the 2023 fiscal year. And within that, uh, the House of Representatives has provided $158 million to support the Office of Pesticide Programs within EPA. This is the first increase in over a decade that we've seen, and it's money that is tremendously needed. I realize for farmers and consumers alike, it may seem odd that uh, the pesticide industry wants to see more money going into EPA, wants to see a stronger EPA. But we rely on the regulatory process, and we know that, that consumers want to know that there is regulatory oversight of pesticides. Um, the problem for us is that regulatory oversight under the law should take two years, uh, but it's taking us almost four years to get a product through the regulatory process. And that's not because EPA is dragging their feet. It's because EPA has 30% fewer staff, uh, you know, looking at 50% more product applications coming through the agency. So that's the reason that we're seeing the types of delays that we are. But, you know, farmers need new tools tomorrow. Uh, they don't. They don't need them next year or or four years from now. Um, we also know that we've got an obligation to bring new products to the market that help address sustainability, help address climate needs. So ensuring that uh, Congress settles on that 158 million, the Senate had put in 140. Uh, we're pressing hard uh, that uh, within this final appropriations bill or omnibus package uh, that they get to 150 million. The other issue for us is that we are reauthorizing the Pesticide Registration Improvement Act, or PREA as we call it. Uh, it was legislation first passed 20 years ago with support of the NGO environmental 
environmental activists as well as farmers and, and industry. It creates user fees that go from our companies uh, to EPA to help support the staffing. Um, our members have agreed to a 30% increase in fees, uh, which is, uh, again, a testament to our commitment to ensuring that EPA has the scientists in place to do the job that's necessary. So what happens if the funds aren't in place? What happens if PREA is doesn't see the light of day in this lame duck and carries into the new Congress. We're, we're at least pleased that uh, if, if we don't get PREA passed uh, in this lame duck, uh, that we have had tremendous support from uh, the House and Senate Agriculture Committees uh, who recognize the importance of this legislation, the value of this legislation, and also see when the pesticide industry can come together with environmental activists, with farmers uh, and others in industry, uh, that that's something that should be easy for Congress to do. So if we don't get it done in the lame duck, we're hopeful that, that the agriculture committees will take care of it after the first of the year. And, and from an appropriation standpoint, um, again, at the end of the day, uh, EPA has showed us uh, their expectations of laying off additional staff. Um, and if they do that, then the delays that we're experiencing become even greater. And the problem for that is at some juncture, as you're making an investment into a new product, you have to look at what is the potential return on investment. And if the regulatory process works, you may have six years to generate a return. When the regulatory process is broken, you may only have four years to generate a return on that investment. So you begin to make choices in terms of, am I going to continue to develop this product or that product? Uh, And that's going to come back uh, to the farmers in terms of lack of availability, particularly for specialty crops, minor crops, uh, other other non-broad acre uh, crop commodities. Chris, when I talk to farmers, two things that they tell me they would really like from Washington is predictability and stability and even at this date i would wonder if maybe some members of your association might ask for the same thing because it appears the goalpost um, is being moved from time to time Uh, there are producers today pending an epa decision on atrazine and and some other products they don't know what herbicide program they might be able to use for even 2023. And I have to believe the registration process and the re-registration process uh, for your industry, it seems that the goal line is being moved there as well. I had the opportunity to bring our leadership together, and we asked the question, what do you need out of EPA? And the two things they said were predictability and stability. So, yes, uh, certainly uh, that uh, those issues are, are absolutely vital. You think about business planning and how you begin to market and sell a product and, and the, the lead time that's needed to ramp up distribution and sales. And so the ability to know that when you have submitted an application, EPA is going to turn that around in a reasonable period of time. Right now, EPA will renegotiate the, the timelines that are required under the law 
uh, as many as seven times. Uh, I've got one company that's that's renegotiated their timeline seven times with the EPA, uh, which is just the you know the, the, uh, the tip of the iceberg in terms of delays that our companies are facing, and and that's incredibly challenging from a business standpoint. You have shareholders and investors that are counting on uh, the expectations that you're going to have a new product to market in a timely fashion. Uh, and so that lack of certainty is having a dramatic effect with our companies. How are questions over endangered species and pesticides either for registration or re-registration moving that goalpost? And that that is another piece of the puzzle, and it also relates to the lack of resources. EPA needs to have the staff in place to be able to do the consultations with the Fish and Wildlife Service, with the National Marine Fisheries Service, so that they can get timely decisions. EPA's new ESA policy, uh, they have announced, will add about a year uh, to the already delayed registration process. That said, I have to give credit to EPA that they have taken steps to address vulnerabilities within the process uh, that were creating specific challenges for us within the industry. Those vulnerabilities were that the EPA would issue a registration decision, but if they had not completed a consultation with the services, then the environmental activists would turn around within 60 days of, of EPA's announcement of that registration decision and sue the agency, uh, alleging that the agency had violated the Endangered Species Act. The steps that EPA has taken were necessary so that EPA could go into court and defend their their actions, defend a registration decision. So that was an important first step. Now we simply need them to be able to complete that process in a timely manner. The ESA, the endangered species issue, is one that is going to continue to show up on the farmer's doorstep. And it is going to create challenges for farmers because we are seeing EPA put together mitigation lists so that if a farmer wants to use a certain chemistry, they may have to ensure or be able to prove that they're doing conservation tillage. They may need to put vegetative buffers uh, or stream stream bank buffers in place if they're going to utilize that chemistry. So we are seeing where the endangered species implementation and the way that EPA is going about implementing that is going to have more and more of an impact on farmers. From your background and from my background and our infancy, we came from the farm. And the one thing that I can say confidently from the farm is that weeds happen. Um, and and from the farmer perspective now, as I communicate with them and, and work alongside them, their goal is sustainability. They've adopted conservation practices, uh, less tillage, which fits right within the uh, the, the the mode of, of carbon sequestration. Um, it fits sustainability that we're using less active ingredient and still able to produce more. But the questions ahead over what products are going to be available makes it very difficult for them to make choices. How does it affect your industry? Well, first and foremost, we know that the pesticides are a vital part of the farmer's 
current conservation plan. It's a part of what they're being asked to deliver from a sustainability standpoint. As we look at uh, the adoption of new climate smart agriculture programs, um, cover crops rely upon the use of pesticides uh, to be able to burn down that cover crop uh, so that you can plant your primary crop in the spring. Conservation tillage requires a greater use of pesticides uh, to be able to control those weeds that do happen. So uh, we are coming back to uh, that question of certainty and predictability, and uh, EPA has the responsibility to review pesticides that had been previously registered every 15 years. The, the challenge is when you've got 700 active ingredients that are on the market today, 700 different pesticides that would have been approved before 2007, EPA is supposed to be reviewing all of the new applications that come in, new products that have been developed. They're supposed to review any requested new use of an existing pesticide. And, by the way, they're supposed to review all of these 700 active ingredients that are on the market today. The workload is simply not possible for the agency to complete in a timely manner. And and that's where we're left with vulnerabilities to court decisions, which have been dictating and directing pesticide policy, and that's unfortunate for all of us. So, again, we need EPA to have the funding and the staff that they need to do the job, but we also need to be looking at how we can change the process overall from registration review to endangered species so that the agency actually has the opportunity to do the job that it needs to do. Thousands and thousands of comments were sent to EPA over atrazine. Why is atrazine such a critical issue for agriculture, and how many different products is this a part of that affect your membership? Atrazine has been a vital tool for farmers for for I think probably more than 50 years because I remember Dad using atrazine on the farm as I was growing up. What I also know now is that we're using far less atrazine than what Dad used uh, 40 years ago. And so that continued refinement of how we're deploying pesticides is is uh, a, a testament to the progress we've made as an industry. Atrazine is is one of those issues that's coming under the endangered species process that EPA is implementing. And EPA is looking at the impact of atrazine on aquatic species. And so they are looking at what is the amount of atrazine that's running off of a field and potentially impacting these waterborne environments. It is certainly a legitimate step for the agency to take. We simply believe that they don't have the best science, the best data, that they're not making decisions based upon actual loading uh, uh, or impact of of atrazine within the waterway or the impact uh, of how atrazine may be affecting some of these species. So they're making very conservative uh, estimates based off of models uh, when we believe that we do have better data that the agency can and should use. That's going to continue to be the the debate and the heart of the fight, whether that takes place through the comment period that's been uh, opened up, whether it takes place through additional litigation at some point in the future. We're we're not done with this fight yet because we know how vital this tool is for farmers. Speaking of fight, 2,4-D 
and the ability to use that in a post application has caused a lot of consternation across the country. What's the update? And and uh, another example of how ESA is showing up on the farm doorstep because uh, EPA issued uh, the enlist decision in January of last year. It blocked off the use of atri- of, of enlist uh, 24D in around 215 counties across the U.S. So farmers who had relied upon that tool suddenly found themselves unable to use that tool because of the impact that EPA was estimating Enlist would have on the American burrowing beetle. The agency went back, uh, and the registrant, Corteva, submitted additional research demonstrating the safety of this product uh, with respect to the American burrowing beetle. EPA evaluated that data and issued an updated decision which relaxed the rule and allowed farmers in more areas of the country to be able to use that product. An example of how the system works, but at the same time it wasn't a timely decision. It wasn't a clear and predictable decision that gave the certainty that we needed. Uh, and, And just yet one more example where uh, EPA needs the staff in place to be able to review the science, evaluate the science, and get to a final decision on a product. So recently, over 300 agriculture groups sent a letter to congressional leadership and asking them to reaffirm the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, FIFRA. Why would it be important now for Congress to reaffirm an existing statute. It's not exactly confirming the importance of FIFRA. It is confirming the importance of having a federal regulatory system that can issue a label that is based on sound science and is superior to any claims that a state may want to make. What we've seen is that EPA has made decisions based upon science. And in a particular example, EPA, as well as countless regulatory agencies across the country, have affirmed that glyphosate does not cause cancer. California, however, in its wisdom, chose to apply a warning label uh, stating that glyphosate may cause cancer. There's no scientific basis for that. It's not been supported or found by any of the regulatory agencies that have looked at glyphosate across the world. But suddenly now, with California wanting to apply this label, you see tort lawyers who are jumping into that space and and suggesting that the industry should have warned people about the potential for cancer. Well, when your regulatory agency has said the product doesn't cause cancer, how do you, how or why should you put a warning label on your product that it may cause cancer? That's the issue uh, that is at the heart of this letter from the agricultural community, including CropLife America. It is our statement to say that the federal label that EPA designs is based on science, and that should trump any state label claims or restrictions uh, that that uh, uh, an individual jurisdiction would want to apply. So the FIFRA law does allow a state to restrict the use of a product, but what happens if 50 states have 50 different labeling requirements 
for companies. Well, and that that is the heart of of what we are seeking uh, as we look to Congress to help address some of these issues. We want to make it clear uh, that uh, a state will continue to be allowed to restrict the use of a particular chemistry, but we don't believe that a state should be allowed to add additional label claims uh, in a way that is confusing to to farmers, consumers, and others. From a dollars and cents standpoint, how much or how hard are companies working to develop a new molecule for crop protection or develop biological controls for pests and crops? I've I've been a board member for Supporters of Ag Research, uh, an organization founded by the late Bill Danforth, uh, who was a preeminent leader in in agricultural research and science. Uh, we have been pushing to increase USDA's competitive research grants funding from about 450 million to the authorized level of 750 million. I share that number to highlight here is the public investment in research across all of agriculture. Bayer Crop Science, one of my Crop Life members, will invest about $2 billion, $2 billion into research. Corteva, about a billion and a half. BASF, a billion to a billion and a half. My companies are investing significantly more in agricultural research and the development of new products, tools, and technologies than what we're seeing from our public uh, investment in agricultural research. So we know that if there will be new pesticide tools, if there will be new biologicals, our companies are looking at different mechanical processes. We've got companies that are, are utilizing planter technology to ensure that a seed treatment can be in furrow uh, or a fungicide can be in furrow with the seed so that we're putting the minimal amount of pesticide in to to get the greatest protection. These are just some examples of the types of, of research investments that our companies are making, again, because they understand that to get through the EPA regulatory process, we need safer we need more sustainable. We need less impact on off-target species. So all of those things are guiding the research and development process uh, that is is billions of dollars uh, from our industry. Chris Novak, I want to thank you for taking time to visit with us on this edition of Open Mic. It's a challenging frontier that you and your members are facing, uh, but also so essential in helping producers meet their sustainability and their productivity goals. Thanks for being here. This is Open Mic. You've been here before, and you know that you have the last word. I have had wonderful opportunities through my career to work for pork, corn, soybean farmers, uh, working now in the pesticide industry, but but at the heart, it's all been the same. How do we ensure that farmers have the tools? How do we ensure that we are developing new innovations that allow 
agriculture not only to succeed, but as we're at a point in time facing a nutrition crisis across the globe because of the Ukraine conflict, farmers need these tools to be able to provide the food that's essential for our world. I love to be a part of that. Our thanks to Chris Novak, President and CEO of CropLife America, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. America's sweetest industry creates jobs and provides a sustainably produced food ingredient. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jack Nally.